What's good, my dear language learning masters, and welcome to Natural Languages and to a new interview of the Language Input Podcast. And today I'm going to have Lori on the show, and she's American and she's a Spanish teacher there in the US. And she's going to tell us about her first experience abroad in Spain when she just couldn't communicate in Spanish when she got there for the first time after eight years of learning the language the traditional way. <laughs> and um, yeah, she's also going to talk to us about, you know, her experience as a teacher herself, the differences between when she started out and after, as opposed to when she started to teach with comprehensible input, okay, and, and much more. So yeah, hope you enjoy it. And yeah, let's get right into it. Let's go. All right. So hi, Lorraine. Hello. <laughs> and uh, welcome to the podcast. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's such an honor to be here. I'm very excited. Awesome. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been a while since we met back in France again. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was several years ago. What's I'm it? trying to remember the last time I was there. Mm -hmm. 2018 or 19, maybe. Okay. I was, I was there in 2017 for the last time. So well, then it must've been 2017. Wow. It's longer than I thought. Yeah. I need to get back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's hope we can do it this year. So yeah, just first of all, as usual, tell us a little bit about yourself, especially when it comes to languages, you know, your teaching journey, your experience as a language learner yourself. Well, my, my goal originally was, was to be a kindergarten teacher. Okay. That's what I really, really wanted to do. Growing All growing up, I wanted to teach kindergarten. And my parents were really upset about that. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> they, they were like, Lori, you're smart. You shouldn't be teaching kindergarten. You should be a scientist or a doctor or, or a lawyer or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really wanted to teach kindergarten. That's, that's really what I wanted to do. Um, my language journey started when I was four. Yeah, I was four. And my aunt, who's only five years older than I am, okay. um, was taking French. And I would go over to visit her and she would teach me French um, from her French class. And I just, I thought that was the most amazing thing that other people spoke a different language because I didn't, up to then, I didn't know anybody who did that. Mm -hmm. And when, and I was just starting to read and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I found this book in the library called Jean Marie's Garden. And it was partly in English and partly in French. And I memorized the whole in, entire book. Although I can imagine how bad my French must have been because I was making it up. It so impressed me that, I mean, I still remember it 55 years later. You know, right. I still remember the name of the book. Um, when I, the next exposure I had to language really and truly was in sixth grade. So it was quite a few years later, almost 10 years later. And my sixth grade teacher, so I, I guess I would have been 11, um, decided that she wanted to teach us a little Spanish. Mm -hmm. She had taken Spanish somewhere. I don't remember where. And she wanted to teach us a little bit of Spanish. And, and again, I, I fell in love with the whole <clears throat> the whole concept, the whole idea. 
And from there, I just kept taking Spanish in school, mostly because I really liked it. But I was so nervous. Anybody ever said, like, tell me how to say hello in Spanish or the number 462 in Spanish. And I would be like, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> and I was just petrified to tell anybody that I was studying Spanish because I didn't want them to ask me those questions. Right. It was a very traditional, you know, kind of classroom situation where we memorized all of the irregular verbs. And I was really good at conjugating and I, I could do all of the, you know, direct object pronouns and put them all in the right place. <laughs> uh, but I, I always struggled to really understand um, what things meant. And part of the reason I know is because everything that we had to do was about translation and it, it wasn't connected. So there'd be 20 sentences to do for an assignment. And each of the 20 sentences was about a different person mm-hmm. in a different situation doing a different thing. So sentence number one is the students were skiing in the mountains of France. And then sentence number two is the dog saw that there was no food in his bowl. And I'm like, this doesn't make (laughs) You're constantly trying to get a picture in your head of what's going on. And there's 20 of them by the time you get to the end. And um, it made me so angry that I couldn't really get it. And the other thing that made me super angry was I was a bit of a perfectionist, just a little bit. And the teachers would say, no, well, it could mean this, or maybe it means that. But the right answer in the textbook says this. So I'm going to take off two points for that. (laughs) (laughs) And I just couldn't, I I just couldn't deal with it very well. Um, You know, looking back, I know it was because I truly, no one ever expected me to think in Spanish. That's really the goal. Um, Because once you can think in a language, then, then you can figure things out. But I couldn't think like a Spanish speaking person because I hadn't understood enough Spanish from Spanish-speaking people to get it. And so now it makes a lot of sense why it was so frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but truthfully, I just took the language because I, I loved the classes and I was good at the classes. Mm-hmm. And I thought in the back of my mind, well, maybe this will help me get a job. <laughs> I, can say, I can say I took Spanish and maybe that will help me get a job because I still really clung to this idea that I, I was gonna, going to teach kindergarten. I was going to teach you know, young kids. And then I ended up in Spain and it was a complete disaster. Like the, the first three weeks I, I, I was there was an incredible nightmare. I had index cards and I walked around with index cards. I didn't actually go to Spain because I wanted to learn Spanish. I didn't even go to Spain because I wanted to go to Spain. I wanted to go to Spain because I had the opportunity to get away from a boyfriend that I broke up with. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I couldn't think of any other way to do it. <laughs> was it the farthest place I can go to, right? <laughs> it was available through the college and it didn't cost me any more money than a regular semester. So I thought, okay. I, I need a new start. I need something completely different in my life. I'm just going to go. And I really gave, I gave very little thought to what was going to happen uh, when I got there, other than I was going to get away. So I was so unprepared. When I got there, I hadn't done any research. I hadn't done any reading. And not just about, you know, Salamanca, where I was, I hadn't done anything about culture shock or, you know, how to adapt when you arrive in a new place. <laughs> and I, I had index cards and I would carry them everywhere I went and, and literally read off of the card. 
So if, if I could read off of the card, then I was fine. If I couldn't read off of the card, I was doomed. I was, I was doomed. <laughs> no Google Translate back then, right? Yeah, oh. <laughs> you know, I have to say that people were so kind to me. Um, I made so many embarrassing, embarrassing mistakes. And they were so good about explaining to me what I had said and what I should say. Um, and the good news, the good news is I really did love language. And I met wonderful people. And I'd had a lot of background um, in grammar. So as I started to get the input, I was able to put all of the rules that I had in my head together and go, oh, now I know what it means. Now I know what it means. So it turned out, you know, it, it took me the whole three months to be really confident. Um, and I wanted nothing more than to stay. I wanted to stay so badly, but I just didn't have the money to do so. And it became a 20 year journey to get back wow. um, to Spain. So and, eventually. <laughs> and yeah, that's the thing that, it's, uh, I mean, I constantly, I'm constantly talking about it, but I won't get tired of it. Like you had Spanish in high school and sixth grade and you- years. I mean, I Eight years, yeah, it was yeah. useless. <laughs> and you perfected grammar, but you actually got to Spain and couldn't communicate. No, not a single thing. And, and it took me hours to make the cards. I mean, I, I, I had to go through a dictionary to make the cards and then I would take the card to my, to my landlady, to my host, and, and say, is this how you really say it? Right. And then she would fix it and, and, ch and, and change right. it. And then it's like, when, when you learn French for travel, this is like, uh, you know, <laughs> French for travel, business English. Yeah, French for travel, okay, great. And you learn to say, how do I get to the train station? So you, you memorize it, you say it, but when you get a reply, Oh my goodness. <laughs> what, what now? What now? You know, it's the same thing. I went to France yeah. and I had taken two semesters of French just because I thought it would be a good idea. And then I got to France when we were in Spain. At the very end, we traveled to France for a little bit and I was in Paris and we wanted to find the, the train station. I mean, how classic is this? Where is the train station? Right. So I pull up. I'm so excited because I can say it. And the, the, the Frenchman just looked at me like I was from mars and uh, it, he he finally says in english are you american are you puerto rican are you japanese are you <laughs> he couldn't figure out my accent <laughs> and he's he his answer was like four paragraphs long and there was just no way i could <laughs> yeah. no way i could do it it just the whole thing is so artificial yes. it is yes. So, yeah, I, I, I'm just imagining yourself with the index cards in Salamanca. Like uh, you said something and then you get, you know, you get a response and you're like, mm. <laughs> like most eye-opening experience ever. And it, it really showed me how naive I was. I mean, I was not a world traveler. It it was the second time I'd ever been on an airplane in my life. I had went, had gone once when I was 12. And this was the second time I'd ever been. Yeah. And the very first morning that I wake up, my um, hostess had taken me on a walk the day before to get from the apartment to the university. And it was a good two and a half mile walk and turns and, and I got out to the first light and I went, <laughs> I have no idea where I am and I have no idea where I'm going and while I stood there trying to you know not panic 
all of a sudden I realized that everyone, <laughs> everyone around me is, is speaking and I'm the only silent one and everybody's walking back and forth and they're all talking and hugging and kissing and walking and, and sharing and doing all these things. And this thought went right through my brain. And 40 years later, I remember it. And it was this, oh my gosh, they actually speak Spanish as their language. <laughs> it was the first time that I had ever been immersed in a, in a place where everybody else actually spoke a second language, which was their first language. And I think it really dawned on me for the first time at 21 that this is what it meant um, for people to speak Spanish. <laughs> And over the years, I've had my students have the same realization in class. Mm, right. Like, mm -hmm. like, come, you know, come running in one day and go, I met, I met a person, I met a person from Argentina, and guess what? The only language they speak is Spanish. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, yes, I can not only imagine that, I can imagine thinking what you're thinking right now. Yeah. Like, they're not, they're not English speakers pretending to speak Spanish, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there's just so many things that the brain opens up to that you're just not aware of and, until you're in the situation yeah, yeah. yeah but that's that's the beauty of languages as well right that not only that you can communicate with a lot more people but you you know you get to experience different cultures different ways of living it's like a whole different world opens up for you right it is it is it's a it was a constant treasure hunt is what I felt like mm -hmm. those three semesters or those three months there that this is it was just a constant treasure hunt everywhere I went was was something to to find and either look at and cherish or take with me you know one one or the other and I remember the very first time that I understood someone without translating it was such a big deal to me and I wanted to turn around and tell everyone in the cafe that I had done it then I realized they didn't really care. <laughs> okay. But it was a really big deal to me that someone had asked me a question and I had answered it and I didn't stop to translate the whole thing in my head. And that was when I realized that, oh, if I think in the language, I don't have to do all that extra work. Um, and it opened a huge door for me. Right. And the, the thing is, it's not that you have a switch here that you can just turn it on and off. Right. But I, I want to think in my target language. It doesn't work like that. It's just, if you're exposed to the language, if you're exposed to comprehensible input, right, you're sub subconsciously acquiring the language and you're going to think in the language. It's not something that you can control at any, at any given point, right? So it's it's about the way you, you actually acquire the language, right? Yeah, it is. And you can see it in students. Um, when you're teaching, you know, kind of where they are in the process. And that's, you know, many times when you're training people, they say, well, how do you know if it's acquired or if it's not acquired? And I know it's acquired when I see them just engage. And I don't, oh, excuse my dog for a moment. No worries. Midas, get your toy. <laughs> and they're not thinking. When, when they don't have to stop and work it out um, and they can just engage and it drops in it, it's it's literally a drop mm -hmm. and you can see it and feel it yeah and and the, the problem with adults is because we've had the traditional grammar approach before even even when you you've actually acquired the language and you know what you want to say 
you even stop for a moment just to think about it from a conscious standpoint because you had those grammar classes before so it's like a mess you know all over the place right it is it is it's like if you were a skier and then somebody says okay today from this point forward we're just going to snowboard mm -hmm. because they're very different i mean they still take place on a slope and there's still snow and there's you know all these things but it's so much of the basic pieces are different um you have to go to a different place in your brain you know your body has to shift mm -hmm. uh, to, to do that and uh it, it's 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 just incredible though how quickly it can happen under the right circumstances mm -hmm. and it only takes it only takes once or twice for someone to realize oh i do know i did that I, and i didn't have to take it apart and put it back together and mm -hmm. it's so it's so powerful when, when it happens that you just want more once mm -hmm. you open that door you're like oh where's the rest of it i need to keep going i need to keep going right and so much fun at the same time like, it is it's so much fun yeah it, it really and it's so rewarding and, and that's that's why i see teachers who love to go to, to demos mm -hmm. um in other languages and i see teachers um who are training who maybe trained for comprehensible input for 20 years and they still love to go back to the beginner classes right so whatever the beginning is um because it's it's where you can actually experience that Mm -hmm. opening of yourself yeah, and, um, over again yeah i'm just understanding the story in a language i have never heard before <laughs> I, yeah. you know. a, a new story and a new language it's mind-blowing it really really is exciting so before we move on to your teaching part uh, i'm just curious how that first day in salamanca how do you get to the university <laughs> <laughs> like, do you do you ask around and just use gestures and how was it I, I didn't i didn't i i was very i was very cowardly i i i went like block to block so i was standing at that one block and i looked around and said okay what do i remember from yesterday what store what what and i and i got one more block and i did that for about three blocks and then, then i ran into a student <laughs> who was in the same program and then and i very gratefully followed her all the way <laughs> to the university um and actually we became very good friends and we're still friends um to this day so she saved me without a doubt um you need to find a way around it always I, always <laughs> but it was being able to, there were so many of those moments where fear took over, where I just froze, mm -hmm. absolutely frozen. And then you realize, okay, I have to contact or connect with somebody or I'm going to be standing here for the next 48 hours. Right, right. So, and that's, yeah, like before we get into teaching, like I said, that's also one of the dangers of immersion sometimes. Because what I mean is, many times when you know you hear about someone wanting to learn a language or or you talking about language acquisition learning a lot of people usually tell you you know just if you want to learn english just go to england or the united states you want to learn french go to france and not that it's bad advice itself but if you're starting from scratch or if you're a beginner it can be frustrating Right. Frustrating and frightening and overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. And we see that all the time, you know, here in the U.S. when we have exchange students that come who, like me, mm -hmm. have studied for many, many years. And then all of a sudden they get to a family and a school and they're, it's just nothing. Right. nothing. Even though they're surrounded day and night by the language because they understand so little of it. 
it's it they just completely shut down and, and go into this tight little space and are afraid to come out yeah you, you start thinking about those exercises the dog what did the dog do <laughs> <laughs> I, I i'm not gonna be able to use this here <laughs> well and the, the other i you know the other reality of of it is truthfully that what we were taught was very textbook Mm. Um, in many ways, it literally was a textbook, but it was, it, there was just rules about how it went and you were not taught the language that people use in everyday life. Right. That was never part of the vocabulary. Right. Um, I could probably tell you all the parts of a dishwasher, um, but I, I <laughs> when I got to Spain and they said, you know, and I was like, what is that? I don't know what that is. I never learned that. And finally, I asked my neighbor what it was she was saying to me, and she wrote it down. And I was like, oh, no, no, that's hasta luego. And she's like, no, it's not. <laughs> um, it was, you know, just the pronunciation and, you know, drop this or use a slang phrase. Right. And, um, my poor, my poor landlady, my poor hostess was in her 80s. And I lived with her and her father, who was almost a hundred, wow. and then me. There was there were no other people, so they didn't speak any English at all. And I would come home, having heard like words, the same words over and over and over and over and over again. So I would come home with my list that I had written down to find out from her what they meant when I couldn't find them in the dictionary. And of course, they were all swear words, you know. <laughs> 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 and the very first, the very first day, I remember everybody keeps saying "ho, ho, ho" all the time. What, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. And she just was like, "Hmm, how do I explain this?" <laughs> <laughs> and there were just so many, so much of, of my first month um, work like that. For that. <laughs> Yeah, because it composed about 80% of what I was hearing over and over and over again. Um, but the, the, the beauty of it was that by December, I was in such a good place um, that I felt that there was a, a me um, that functioned in Spanish. Right. Yeah, that's, that's one of the good things about Spanish people in general not speaking English really well, that if you go to Spain and you don't speak the language, you better learn it, right? <laughs> if you want to communicate, especially, I guess, if I mean, if you live in Madrid or Barcelona, I guess you can find your way around with English, I mean, but yes. in, in Salamanca, I'm guessing, no. <laughs> well, not in 1982, no. <laughs> you know, at that point, things were, were not as open as they, as they are now. Right. Um, and what got me there was my ability to, as you said earlier, to stop and ask other people, no matter how embarrassing it got. <laughs> I was so embarrassed so many times after a while, I just stopped being embarrassed. Right. And I just, I was able to ask, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Um, and I, I, I'm a talker and I had to learn to be a listener. Mm. Uh, so in listening and hearing things over and over again, and then constantly asking people, what did you say? What does that mean? Um, can you write that for me? Mm -hmm. um, that I really began to think in Spanish. Um, that and music. I, have, I, cannot, I cannot underestimate the power of music. So when I was there, um, Julio Iglesias had just released a new album. Wow. <laughs> back 
in the day. This is a long time ago, okay? <laughs> and um, and also Miguel Rios had just had just had it. So two different kinds of music completely. But I love I love music and I love to sing. And so my friend bought me um, two cassettes, and I listened to those cassettes over and over and over and over. And then all of a sudden, the music that or the, the lyrics that were in the music kept showing up in conversation everywhere I went. Yeah. And I started to realize that if I want real language, I'm going to find it in songs right yeah. now. Um, we couldn't use TV back then. I mean, there were only two channels. <laughs> la uno y la dos. <laughs> Exacto. <laughs> and it was bullfighting or bullfighting. I mean, that was really... <laughs> <laughs> for the most part, you know, there, I wasn't at home and at points in which anybody watched a talk show or a movie or, you know, a morning show, those weren't really part of, it was news or bullfighting. That's pretty much what we watched uh -huh. in my apartment with my family. I'm sure other people watched other things, but, okay. but there wasn't anything that I could use in the street from my bullfighting yeah. watching with the hundred year old. <laughs> But in music, I could, I could. I kept hearing the same expressions over and over again. So yeah. I give a lot of credit. I give a lot of credit to the music and understanding the lyrics. Yeah, music can be really interesting. Like there's like a little dangerous part about it because it's not super comprehensible, especially at the beginning, right? right. But then the, the great thing about music is one, you love it, right? It's, it's so, I mean, you're so interested in it that you're going to do it anyway, right? And our brains are wired for it. They really are. And over time, yep, exactly. And, and again, I wasn't afraid to go to people and say, what, do, what is he saying in this song? What is this line and what does it mean? So I was con it, was, it gave me something to talk to people about. Mm -hmm. I like this song. I don't understand it, um, which were pretty easy phrases <laughs> to say. <laughs> and what does this mean? And... Um, Yeah. And I, I really was able to, to get a lot of, of connection um, with other people from yeah. the music. You became part of the culture through it as well. Right? Yeah. And a lot of people shared their favorite songs with me yeah. and the, their favorite songs when they were children. And it led to some beautiful connections. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. You, you're right. You can't understand the lyrics when you're dancing in a club. No, it's not. <laughs> it's like, it's even, Even depending, depending on the artist, sometimes I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding specific sentences in my own native language, right? Like the, the first time you listen to them, of course. Then right. Over oh, time, there are songs in English I don't understand the words to. And even if I understand the words, I don't understand the meaning. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it, has right, it has to be the right music. You're right. Then when you listen to it for, you know, The 30th time, okay, things have started to make sense, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good, good resource, yeah. All right, so let's get to your teaching part, to the teaching part, like, uh, how, how did that start? Um, did you go right away with kindergarten, like you wanted? <laughs> or? So I was a very good girl. I was the oldest, I'm the oldest in my family. And I, and I tried to always do what my parents told me to do. I was very well behaved. And um, my freshman year at, at the college, at the university, I took science and calculus, math, and difficult. I took every difficult course I could find. And, and um, I took one course 
in teaching. And by the end of the semester, I knew that I wasn't going to do any of those other things. I, I was going to be a teacher. So for the first time in my life, I rebelled and um, I said, no, I'm going to be a teacher. And I put my foot down. So I, I studied to be an elementary teacher, but I told you I kept the Spanish classes, hoping it would get me a job. Before I went to Spain, I did my practice teaching and I did practice teaching in a first grade classroom, which I loved. And I did practice teaching with Spanish um, because I figured if I'm going to have the credits, I might as well have the degree. But to get the degree, I had to do the practice teaching. And I had a wonderful master teacher, you know, a wonderful teacher to I was assigned. She was just amazing. Um, and she really encouraged me to think about teaching older students and to think about teaching language. <laughs> But I remember her telling me, and again, remember, I was a perfectionist. I remember her telling me about two months in, she said, Lori, the teaching is not going to be a problem for you, but your Spanish <laughs> work. <laughs> and so when I was looking, you know, two months later, when I was looking for a way to get out and get a new life, I remembered her saying that and that. It's like, hmm, maybe Spain, maybe that would be a good idea that I could actually get Spanish. Because <laughs> yeah. that irked me, that bothered me that she said that, that I wasn't good at something that I, I wanted to be good at. Mm -hmm. um, but I think without her, I don't know that I would have had the courage um, to do it. When I graduated from college, I needed to get a job. And I mean, my family was not, we didn't have the money to support me. I needed a job. Um, and a place to live and all of those things. And the only jobs that were available were teaching Spanish. Okay, so yeah, sorry to interrupt. So you went to teach kindergarten, but it wasn't necessarily language teaching. That, that no. afterwards, okay? Uh, uh, yeah, but I couldn't find a job teaching mm -hmm. the little kids. As a general education teacher, I, I couldn't find a job. So the universe pushed me <laughs> in the direction of teaching Spanish. <clears throat> and I, I knew, before, before the first month was over, that it was the right place to be. Mm. Um, because my Spanish was better for one, but we get to do all of the same things that we do with the younger ones. You know, we were doing the alphabet and doing reading and doing art and music and anything that I, I realized, anything I wanted to do with the little ones, I could do with the older kids um, mm. in Spanish. Um, and that was the end of that. That just, started my career and I kept on, kept on going. Yeah, it, it, when, when, how to put it into words, like when you know that you're doing the thing you want to do, like deep down, you know it, right? You know it. Like right away, yeah. It's never felt like work. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and in English, we say, if you're doing what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. It's mm -hmm. a very common expression. And I, I, yeah, the only time I feel like it's work is when I have to do grading. <laughs> okay. Yeah, then we get into a different <laughs> um, part of it, right? For especially for for people, for teachers having to deal with curriculums and yeah. boards of directors and stuff like that. Right? Yeah. But the truth is, the beauty of it is the students mm -hmm. um, and the interaction, because it's and that's I think why I wanted to teach the lower school kids because they interact. 
They don't just sit at a desk and stare at you and expect you to dump information on them. Mm -hmm. They want to interact all the time. And, and that's what I was looking for. Um, and in language, and especially with comprehensible input, that's what we do. I know we call it comprehensible input, but it's comprehensible input based on interaction. Okay. And sometimes the interaction is verbal and sometimes it's physical and sometimes it's very subtle. Mm -hmm. um, it's always about interaction. And what you say next is based on the reaction that you've gotten from the person you're speaking right. with or interacting with. They're engaged the whole time. Yeah, the whole entire time. Um, and it's very powerful. It's very, very, very powerful. It, and it changed, you know, I've heard so many people say I would have left teaching if I hadn't found comprehensible input. Hmm. I've heard hundreds of teachers say that. Yep. Um, I've met dozens of teachers who have told me I was ready to quit or retire. And then I found this and I couldn't, I, I couldn't quit. I couldn't retire. Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember if it was Judith or Terry that we're talking about exact, exactly the same thing. One of them told me like the amount of teachers that were ready to give up or just having a hard time or just not wanting to do it anymore. But the moment they realized that they could actually help the students have fun themselves, make them, their students have fun. It just. It's all you ever wanted. It's all, it's all you ever wanted yeah. from, from, from teaching. Right. I am. And when I first started training teachers, I, I had this thing that I would say, and, and I think maybe it would be helpful to bring it up. And, and that is that I, before comprehensible input, I used to feel like I was on a stage and my students were the audience. Mm -hmm. And I would get up there every day and give this great show, this absolutely great show. But there was a clear um, wall between me and, and the audience. And they never actually heard what I said, ever. And then now it, it looks differently. I'm down in the audience. We're interacting together and there's no shield. There's no barrier um, between us. And what barriers there are, I'm learning how to get rid of. I can figure a way to get rid of the barriers. Yeah, when, when you're giving a speech, it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about language or, um, I don't know, <laughs> IT, whatever you're talking about, they're not listening. Exactly, it doesn't matter, they're just, um, Susie Gross used to say they, they become screensavers. They have a screensaver face. Exactly. Absolutely. So, um, the, so do you start with comprehensible input right away? Or? No, no, I taught for uh, about 18 years um, before comprehensible input came into my view you know, into my viewing lens at all. So here in the U.S., there was a listserv back in the day when technology was much older <laughs> or newer, I guess. Um, there was a listserv through the university that I went to, the University of Portland. And um, hundreds of teachers from around the country and, and eventually around the world had joined this listserv. And we, it was called FL Teach. And people would just get on and, you know, ask questions and answer questions and, you know, put on opinions. And, and um, 
I kept hearing in, in the background, um, actually a, a lot of negative comments about um, TPRS okay. and TPRS. And I knew what TPR was. Um, and I'd learned that in my college classes. And I um, had learned about Asher and the natural approach because I taught university level when I was doing my um, master's degree. And the person who shared a desk with me um, used Asher's approach. And I couldn't understand it at the time at all. I had no idea what she was doing. And I kept thinking, how could this possibly work? as she kept explaining it to me. So I'm trying to put this together with what I'm reading on the listserv and all this negative, negative, negative um, input basically about um, TPRS, which at the time um, was kind of a, a, a new idea. So this was in the late 80s, early 90s. So I decided that anything that was getting that much attention must be worth looking into. If it was generating that much energy and that much excitement that it was worth finding out about, if for no other reason, so that I could, I could verbalize, I could talk about it, you know, with my colleagues. My very first um, teaching year, I was very young, so I was 21, and all of my colleagues were in their 40s. And, and I was 21 and they said to me, you've got to come to this conference. We go to this conference every single year we go and you have to go. I said, okay, I'll go. And I got all excited and, and I got there and it was all of these people between the ages of 40 and 60. And they were just so happy to be there. And I thought, oh, how do I get out of it? How do I get home? How do I, I can't stay here? It's so horrible. It was all these college professors and drinking cocktails and I had just left Spain I was <laughs> I was ready to get on the dance floor and um, and then and then the next day that was called the New York State Foreign Language Teachers Conference and the very next day I went to a session and at the session um, were people who were teaching about using music in the classroom uh, and I I was so mesmerized by what they were saying that I ran up to them afterward and I said I'm your people. You don't know me. We've never met, but you're my people. I'm your people. And they just looked at me like, nice. <laughs> and they went on to the next person. You know? And I ran back to my colleagues I'd come with. And I went, I went to the best session. It was so amazing. Are there any other sessions like this? And they handed me over the booklet and they said, yeah, here, check them out. Go find it out. And that was my first connection with professional development and how important it was. And, and I'm telling you that I meet teachers all the time who have never been to any kind of second language or world language professional development because their schools don't have access or exposure to it. And that changed, it changed my life and my, my total career. Without that, I would have been a very different teacher. Okay. And those two women that I ran up to down the road, I ended up teaching with them at their school <laughs> and they are now two of my best friends. So. Um, the colleagues and the people that you meet while you are a teacher and training to be a better teacher or a more connected teacher or a more involved teacher, those are the ones that change your life. So, and I knew this, so I didn't know anybody who was using comprehensible input. So my instinct said, get to know some of these people that are using comprehensible input because those are the teachers who will tell you what you need to know. Because mm -hmm. Anything good that I had learned about teaching, I had learned from like-minded teachers. Right. So, 
at the time, so this is, I was probably in my early 30s, and I had two little boys, both under the age of four, um, and I had the opportunity to go to the state conference that I had been going to every year now, and there was this gentleman named Gail Mackey from California who taught with Blaine Ray, and he came to do a presentation on TPRS. Now, I'm going to tell you, he was in enemy territory because no one, you know, anyone who was important at that time in New York State was saying, no, 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 we can't do this. And I went and I couldn't stay long because I had my own presentation afterwards. So I was only there about 10 minutes. And after about three minutes, I was like, he's making it happen. What we always want to happen. He's making it happen. There are people here who've never ever done Spanish and they're up there doing everything he told them to do and they're making a story and then they're talking about the story in Spanish. I was like, why isn't everybody standing on a chair and screaming to see more? You know, because everybody's just watching and nodding and I'm like vibrating going, I can't believe this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. And I had no idea what he was doing or how he was doing it because I only jumped in on the demo. Mm -hmm. But I knew from that moment that I had to find out more. Right. So um, little by little by little, anytime I could see a presentation um, of any kind I went, um, I got onto the TPRS, more TPRS listserv, connecting with other teachers who were using it. And it took about a year before I was brave enough to try something in my classroom. Mm -hmm. So I decided to tell a, t a story in the past tense to my lowest achieving class. So this is the class that um, was only taking Spanish because they wanted to, they didn't have to, and nobody expected them to do well. Hmm. If, if they got a C, it was, people were ecstatic. So they were not strong students. They were not really great students, but they were wonderful people. And I had a student in that class who was a very, very bright, very bright young man, but very slow processing. You know, I would be three paragraphs down the road and he would answer a question from 10 minutes ago. <laughs> um, and I told the story of the volcanoes in Mexico, um, Poponizzi, and I told the legend and we acted it out. And of course, I didn't even know what I was doing, really. I hadn't even been to a training specifically for comprehensible input. Um, but we had a good time. We had a really good time. And the next day I said, who can tell me in English um, sort of summarize the story for me and tell me all the details that you can remember because we had never once done that. We hadn't gone over the story in English. We had just done it in Spanish. And this student said to me, I, I think I can do it in Spanish. In Spanish? I said, no, you only need to do it in English. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I'm pretty sure I can do it in Spanish. It's in my head all night. I just kept coming back to the story. Um, and they had never done the past tense. I had never done the past tense with them. And he proceeded to retell the story in very incredible detail using the correct endings in the past tense. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind. And I just thought from that point forward, I just didn't look back. Yeah, <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I was actually about to ask you, but you, you answered the question because I was talking with Judith, I believe, about this same thing. She she told me about a boy from from the, from America who came to France on an exchange program, just like you. And he he was he was amazing in French. That was she told me. 
So she thought he was like a bright student, you know, straight A's and so on. But <laughs> the funny thing is he actually failed everything but French. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Because of that. So it is. So I, I was going to ask you about some experience of yours like that, but yeah, you just answer that with, with this kid's experience, right? It is, uh, it, it is, you know, I'm always talking about it as well. Like I, I don't like the way, not just languages, but anything is taught in general, like that, you know, like a, a teacher giving a speech, like you said, and just like whatever the topic and having kids memorize things that they don't care about. <laughs> and it's a yeah. game. Yeah. yeah. I think that, wor that, that works for nobody. Like th there's some kids who pass the exams because they're, I don't know, they, they like studying or they're good at it or they memorize in a better way or, you know, but I don't think that that's helping them farther down the road, right? Even if they're passing the exam, exactly. So, and uh, the thing is when you actually teach the language so they can actually acquire it and the way we all acquire a native language, right? Because all, we all have that ability, right? It just, it just makes all the difference. And then you talk about things that they're interested in, right? So it just, it's like day and night, yes. <laughs> it really is. And interestingly enough, that young man lives here in Austin. Okay. <laughs> and he and I have reconnected and he, he still uses Spanish every, every day. He still does. And the thing is, is that when you tell the stories, a lot of times people think, well, that's one kid or two kids or three kids. But it's not really. It's it's the majority of, of the students have these kinds of moments. Yeah, and probably that that one student is probably extroverted enough to be willing to tell the story. But the rest of them, they might be a little bit scared to try it out. But the story is in their heads too. They just, it is. Yeah, they just don't want to show it, or they, they just you know. <laughs> you know I, I tell young teachers just give it time. One, your students aren't comfortable yet in their teens or in their early 20s. They're not comfortable sharing with you um, what they've learned from you. Right. you know? They're right. not sharing. They're just not comfortable. But when they get older and if you can reconnect with them, I'm, I'm constantly receiving you know, messages from students that are in their late 20s, early 30s, 40s, you know, and, and, and they're telling me these experiences that they've had where they haven't had Spanish in 20 years. But in an emergency situation or, you know, certain situation, they're able to actually communicate in a really important way. Right, right. You know, and they can share with me what they've said. I had a student who took Spanish for two years, only when she was 11 and 12, who is an EMT, an emergency medical technician. I'm working in an ambulance. And she came on a scene where a, a Spanish-speaking person was injured. And there were six police officers there. None of the police officers spoke Spanish. And she hadn't had Spanish in eight years. And she was able to find out, um, you know, who he was and where he was from and why he was injured. And actually, he'd been shot. And he, she was able to find out where the, the, the person who had shot him had gone, you know, all of this information. Um, and to her, it was astounding because she was one of my students that said, I don't need this. 
Mm. I'm going to use Spanish. Why do I need this? Um, and for her to be able to just in the moment, eight years later, pull up what she needed was so powerful for her. Yeah. Yeah, and you're, you're going to have people who are not really interested in learning the language. I mean, when we're talking about kids, adults usually sign, no, adults sign up because they want to, right? But even in that scenario, if, if, if you're creating stories, if you're talking about things they're interested in, they're going to become interested in the story itself and they're going to kind of forget about the listening to a different language, right? Exactly. They it's, stop seeing it as a class. Exactly. Yeah. And back to what you said that the students are not going to show what they learn sometimes. I'm thinking that when it comes to languages, even with adults, for different reasons, not because they're shy like teens, right? But because of the way the language mechanism works, they might not communicate in, in the target language yet because they, they didn't get enough comprehensive input, right? right. That, that's the way it works. You're, you're always going to be able to understand way more than you can say. And part of the training when you're teaching with comprehensible input, I think you have to really remind students, whatever age they are, that this is not what they think it is. Okay, that the goal is not for them to be able to stand up and walk out after 10 hours of instruction speaking fluently. Right. Um, that, that there are steps and progressions that we go through. And the first one is about understanding what you hear and nothing else is going to happen and, until you hit a certain point of being able to understand what you hear. Um, and I think that as teachers, who are using this with students, the more we remind them of that, that this is how the brain works from the very beginning, um, that the more successful the students will feel because they're measuring themselves on that other ruler, which says, you're, you're teaching me language or I'm taking a language so that I can just go out and speak to everybody. Um, and since I can't say everything I want to say, I must be failing and the class must not be working. Um, so one of the things we have to do when we're teaching is to build in all of these confidence pieces. And one of them is the number one thing to reward students for is comprehension. Mm. And, and that's what they should be seeking because once we get them to understand that their goal is comprehension, then some of that relaxes. They, they can stop worrying about what do I have to say next? Yep. So you're listening in order to understand, not listening in order to respond, yep. which is a good lesson in any language. Um, and also that it's okay to stop and ask, well, what did that mean? What does that mean? I don't understand. Yeah. And to me, um, if that's the first and only thing that we teach our students, um, we've opened a huge door for them. Because being able to stop people and say, I need help I didn't understand, gives them the ability to open thousands and thousands of doors. Um, and if we don't make that part of our practice in the classroom, um, we're closing doors for them. Um, so Absolutely. it's hard to remember um, to do yeah. when you're teaching with it, but it's so super important. Right. Yeah, it's, I think it's the number one cause of frustration in the language student. And even for, I mean, I, I teach adults, so I, I deal with adults, and it's the number one thing. Like they, they, they get better at comprehension, they understand more and more, but they feel frustrated because they can't communicate the way they'd like to. Yeah. And that's because of the traditional grammar approach, right? Because 
unfortunately so dominant all over the world that when we were students, we went through it. When if you if you be, if you started to become a teacher in college, you went through it as well. And it's just so many years of experience doing it the wrong way that you think you should be able to speak from pretty much day one. Right. right. Why would it be the wrong way if that's how everybody does it? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, exactly. And because you can't really communicate because of the way the brain works, nothing crazy. It <laughs> is. You feel frustrated. And I see all the time, like even like, because I'm putting out content constantly trying to help people understand how the process works. For the most part, the students that are interested in, in, in learning Spanish with me, they, they're bought into the idea for the most part, right? So I, I don't get people who want to pass a, a certificate or, or, or <laughs> right. Learn, right? But even those people who are convinced like this is the way to learn the language, they still feel, feel frustrated because of the need to communicate as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Which I understand because that's your ultimate goal, right? To be able to communicate in the language, I get it, but it's just not the way it works. <laughs> right? it's it's part of that frustration is part of the developmental process. I'm sure of it. Hmm. And I'm sure of it because two-year-olds have temper tantrums. Hmm. At two years old, you are just beginning to be able, you can understand almost anything. I mean, oh. that's practical that you're being told, but you don't have a grip on communicating yet. Mm -hmm. And their frustration comes out very often as a temper tantrum. Hmm. Um, and to me, there are very few two-year-olds who don't have that experience, mm. who don't get frustrated easily. And I, I think it's a part of the brain's developmental process with language that now you're, be, you're, <clears throat> you're at the point where now you want to communicate in bigger spaces than you have words for. Mm -hmm. Happens, here's the thing, it happens right before the next stage. I mean, right before kids start to spill out with hundreds and hundreds of words, they right. have that frustration point. And unfortunately, in the school and, or in training or classes, people get to that frustration point. And because they're adults, they think, oh, now I, I'm just going to stop. Mm. And they, they're so close. They're this close. Have you ever seen the comic strip um, or a meme where the, there's a gentleman and he's like digging a tunnel underground with a spoon? Okay. He's digging and digging and digging and digging. And it's, you know, the, the tunnel is this long. And he says, oh, I'm just going to give up and walk away. And then you see the next shot. And he's just like this far from breaking through to the other side. And I think that that's people in frustration, are that's where they are. Mm. They have that little this feet away and they are frustrated. But if they could just hang in there a little bit, that next, they would get to that next developmental stage that Bill Van Patten talks about. And boom, there they would be able right. to produce it. Yeah, I, I never thought about that. Yeah. And also, I think when you first get to that stage and you first start to spill out with language, you also are not perfect. You know, you have to work through the brain's ability to. Hell to <laughs> right. Um, and I love that's, I think, something we should really be grateful to Bill Van Patten for mm -hmm. is this concept that errors are, they're not. A problem they're a gift they're a developmental stage mm -hmm. and it means that now your brain is in a whole different processing mode and is working through it and it's actually showing you how bright your brain is oh yeah 
when you think about the fact that a three-year-old first says in English, I went, and then says I goed, hmm. because they've picked up a pattern in their brain that no one taught them, that ed on the end of a verb means past tense. Then they realize everybody doesn't use goad. They start saying, I wented. And they start putting the two together before they finally come back to the where they started, which is, I went. Right. So to go, I go, I went, I goad, I wented, I went and come back to it again. That is amazingly brilliant. Um, and now we don't have to punish students for that. Oh, <laughs> we know that it's, yeah, see, even my dog is upset. Yep. <laughs> agrees, agrees, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a relief for teachers if we can get people to accept that. Mm. That, the, that mistakes, that errors are just the brain's processing tool. And as we process through and keep working with more input and more comprehension, that those things will fall away. Yeah, and sometimes it just, I mean, not sometimes, I think all the time, those errors are just the brain coming up with the specific rule itself without yeah. consciously studying and yes. adjusting, right? It is, and it's more effective than if you had been taught the rule, because no, no brain at that stage is, is going to apply the memorized rules. And so there is an advantage for adults, like me when I went to Spain, I had a whole list of rules, but it didn't help me at all. It didn't help me at all until I actually could think in the language, understand reading in the language, listen to the language and understand it. And then every once in a while, not all the time, every once in a while, it would click in and I would go, oh, that's what that means. <laughs> yeah. um, it, but all of that room memorization, although as delightful as I found it, because oh. I like it, um, was not all that helpful until I, had, I was able to actually speak and think and read in the language. Yeah, um, yeah I think actually I'm starting to believe that it might actually get in the way. I believe it does. Oh yeah, because you have to think in your you have to think in your your native language first. Mm. Think in your mother tongue first. Yeah. Then you try to apply the rules that you're thinking about in your first language to your second language. Yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess. It does. It takes I, you farther and farther from the meaning. It takes you farther from from what people are are trying to say. Exactly. Um, so, like I said before, even when you've actually acquired the language or that specific structure you're still stopping to think about, about it in a conscious way, right? Yeah. But when, when you talked about goad or went, went it, I was thinking about the example in Spanish that I talk about all the time, which is rompido, you know, like roto. Oh, yeah. Same thing, like, you know, from comer, comido, from beber, bebido. So why not romper, rompido? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> every every single Spanish-speaking kid says rompido at the beginning. Every single one. That is so fascinating to know. Yeah. Um, and I see that in the classroom, too. I, I see my students acquiring in the classroom. So, you know, before I use comprehensible input, it used to drive me crazy that kids could not um, use those patterns. So mente at the end of a word for L-Y. And I, we did hundreds and hundreds of them. And it just drove me crazy that one, kids couldn't understand them. And two, that they couldn't create them. Because once you know the rule, you should be able to create them. Um, <laughs> and then when I let go of a lot of that and was teaching with comprehensible input, I was astounded at how my students were correctly 
creating language that before I couldn't even get them to understand, you know, and, and I have kids saying things that I don't know that they've ever heard, but because the pattern makes sense in their brain, mm -hmm. they're now able to use correctly. And when they hear something, you know, they will like say rompido, rompido, and then all of a sudden they'll realize, oh, mm. I said rompido, but you asked me roto. Mm. And it takes a while. I mean, it takes a while. It doesn't, it's not five or six times. It's hundreds of times of hearing it. But then once they get it, they get it. But it's really cool. You know, people always say you can't replicate that kind of thing in the classroom. But you can. Yeah. You can rep replicate acquisition in the classroom. Um, not in the same way and not in the same time period. Um, and of course, the students you're dealing with most of the time are not two years old. Um, mm -hmm. But in their own way um, and in their own patterns. And if you do it over a long enough period of time, you will see those patterns develop. And I hope down the road that scholars like Diane and other people read Riggs who are getting into the field of studying acquisition in the classroom, you know, mm -hmm. start to, be able to produce materials um, that we can read to say, yes, my instincts were right. I am seeing this happen in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah, principles are the same, right? Exactly. You, you don't have to talk to them the way you talk to a baby, but principles are the same, yeah. I, I was also thinking, like, how many non-native English speakers do you know? that can perfectly communicate in English, but still say he won't. Yes, Come hundreds, and hundreds. From a <laughs> conscious, conscious standpoint, there's any rule as simple as that one? I don't think so. No, and I think that also, and it is, it's very simple. And the other piece that's, that comes up with this all the time is pronunciation. Mm. And um, many of my non-native English speakers who teach French or Spanish or German, um, and their native language is French or Spanish or German, are very concerned about the pronunciation of their students. Mm. Very concerned. So they want to make sure, so if you are, for example, from Argentina and you're teaching a 10-year-old, you want that 10-year-old's pronunciation of Spanish to be perfect before anything else. And, and they will stop and correct their pronunciation repeatedly mm. until they feel that it's correct. And it's super important to them. Yet, when they speak English, hmm. it's almost always with a very strong accent. Right. And I'm thinking that maybe some of that is their own experiences with having an accent. But I think it's really more about those things that were drilled into our brains early on, was yeah. the accent must be right. And what I have seen... And of course, it's not documented, and I didn't do a study on it, but I will tell you that I have seen thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, thousands of students whose accents are, are better than their teachers. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were exposed to the language outside of the classroom as well. Yeah. Well, and because as part of the comprehensible input piece, all right, they're not thinking in English first and then putting it into the target language. Right. They're putting it in the target language first, and then they're being supplemented with little videos or songs or you know, little clips that they're watching or other people who come in or listening to two teachers talk to each other. Um, and their accents are stunningly beautiful. Mm. Um, accent is very rarely a problem in comprehensible input-based classrooms. 
yeah. even when the teacher doesn't have the world's best accent. Okay. Yeah, like, first of all, communication is the most important thing, the message, right? But then I'm just thinking, like, even if you want your students to, to sound as native-like as possible, or yourself as a language student, I mean, the way to achieve that is to get exposed to the language even more. Because think about it, when, when the foreigner lives in the US, they speak English with American accent. Yeah. And when, when, when a person from the same country, same circumstances go to, goes to England instead, they speak English with British accent. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> How does that happen? Yeah. Because <laughs> they, they were exposed to that accent. It's just, yeah. it does it's not time. because of, of pronunciation classes. Yeah. <laughs> it's because they're listening to that accent. Yeah. Yes. And that's, that's what they acquire. So, you know, it's, it's a gift sometimes to tell teachers, just relax about the accent and yeah. deliver the best language that you can, the clearest way possible, and the rest, and I promise you, it will come. It, it really will come. Yeah. And it's beautiful to see and hear. Exactly. And how much fun they're having, they themselves, the teachers and the students, and, you know. Yeah. There's just so much to, what I love about teaching with comprehensible input is that if I want to, I can be a better teacher every day. I can learn something every day to make next day's class better mm -hmm. than the day before. Now, I can't change my students. I mean, I can't change their mood. I can't change that they don't want to wear a mask. I can't change, you know, their home life. I can't change that maybe they just failed a class in science. But I can make my class um, more interesting and more student-focused and better for their language acquisition. Um, even if they're grumpy, even if they're upset, even if they're mad, I know that on my end, I have one little thing I can do today for my students. Right. And, it, and I don't have to rewrite my whole curriculum to do it. Yeah, yeah, and it's just human, I mean, it's human nature, human life, like they might be grumpy about whatever it is, like you said, but if you're creating a story in which the main character is a famous person on TikTok, which they're interested in, just to give you an example, they're naturally going to be interested. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Even if they've been grumpy the whole day, it is, you know. Now, do you find that you have teachers who watch your podcast um, that are just trying to learn about comprehensible input? Sometimes, yeah, I, I, I get emails from, from teachers who want to learn how to teach in a different way, yeah. And so what do you think that their top questions are? What are, what are important questions you hear from teachers who are just learning? Mm, well, like a, a, common, a common situation is just a teacher that whatever the circumstances, like school teacher or just on their own teaching adults, the common story is they, they felt like something wasn't right. <laughs> that's, that, that's a starting point. Right, mm -hmm. but many times you just you just don't have an alternative, right? So you feel like something's not right. They try different ideas. They try games or music or things that they intuitively know that their kids are going to be more interested in. But like over it, there's always the traditional grammar approach umbrella to put it that way, right? Yeah. 
So they use more interesting stuff, but it's still based on consciously learning the language as opposed to acquiring it, right? And that's what, that was exactly my personal situation as a teacher was right. to try to make it, you know, I kept trying to make it more and more and more and more interesting for yeah. 13 years um, without realizing that the piece that was missing was not to get them to say the language over and over and over again, which was what I was taught, right. but make sure they understood <laughs> um, everything yeah. and to feed them really interesting things in interesting language that they understood. Right. Yeah, and then it also has to do with the technique itself. Like once, once they've been exposed to my podcast or other videos or Stephen Grashen or whatever it is, they understand how it works. They understand this is the way they're convinced. But just like me, when I went to Ajahn for the first time, I had watched a lot of videos. I read Stephen Stephen Grashen's books before, but I just needed to see it in action, I needed to learn the technique to put it into words, right? So sometimes that's that's the thing they're more interested in. So they're already convinced, they already know that's the way they want to do it, but they just want to know the specifics of it. How, how do you, you know, do you translate for, to your native language when, when you don't know any other way? Do you use a lot of gestures, you know, just like the technique itself, the specifics of it, you know? But for the most part, they're already convinced when they reach out to me because they've, you know, first of, first of all, they felt like something was wrong. Yeah, and then thanks to the internet and the amount of, you know, uh, content that there is about any topic, <laughs> they've, already, <laughs> they've already been exposed to it. And I guess we all do that, right? Before reaching out to someone, we first consume a lot of videos and blogs or whatever is the way you consume content the most, right? So yeah. they're, they're already convinced. So I, I don't need to do any convincing, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> that is no, that is great. Because, because 20 years ago, that's most of what people did. You know, but we've spent 25 years convincing people and it's so amazing and wonderful and gratifying <laughs> that we don't have to do that as much anymore. Yeah. you're not going to convince anybody you just you put up the content you talk about it and you let them come to you, to you. because they're interested in it right because if you're trying to convince someone who's not interested in it or who doesn't believe in that yet it's, <laughs> you're wasting everyone's everyone's time because it's, it's not gonna happen you know? so true but this, that one piece of content that you put out, or that uh, the way one of your guests talked about it, you know, that, that, that makes them click. That, oh, so that might be interesting. That, that makes sense. I wasn't convinced by it, but now that she's talking about that, hmm, I'm just going to get into it a little bit more. And then they start getting into it more and more. And, you know, a couple months later, it makes all the sense in the world. And they're yeah. so they reach out to you. Or, you know, that's, that's how it works. Yeah. And that's the other beauty of this particular approach is the people that come along with it. I think um, we learn from each other yeah. all the time. And you, even if you are learning from video, even if you're learning online, it's coming from a person. You're reading a blog or you're, you're watching someone or you're um, reading an article and the person who wrote it is always coming along with it. Yeah. 
And you can um, reach out to them, be in contact with them. Yeah. Yes. And there are people, I, I call them gatekeepers. Um, there are certain people that open the gate for you um, so that you can go down the path and try something new. Um, and we all have them. I mean, when I start talking about that, everybody who's incomprehensible input in any way says, yeah, the person who opened that gate for me was, um, and it's always an interesting conversation because everyone is a little bit different personality-wise and background-wise, and we resonate with different people. So if they're really interested in comprehensible input and they don't resonate with me or they come to me and say, well, I went to this person and I watched these podcasts and I, you know, I watched those videos and I just, it's not me. Um, you know, we can always direct them towards somebody else and they can keep trying because um, there's a gatekeeper for everyone mm -hmm. um, that you feel comfortable with. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important for people to find their gatekeeper um, because when you do, then you realize what you have in common with everyone else. Right. Um, but it's hard to feel alone, uh, especially in these times. <laughs> to know that there is somebody out there who gets you and understands you it, it, i don't know to me it's the, the whole concept of comprehensible input yeah 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 that's that's also one of the reasons when why i'm having so much fun with this with this podcast with this interview like i keep talking about it in every episode at the end of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah back to what you said like we agree on the whole thing you know, we, 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 we believe in the same approach for the most part, but we all have our little things that we do differently or little nuances or little mm, resources that we use. So I, I've talked about it many times, but I use board games a lot. Mm -hmm. for, for, How for fun. Yeah, so I'm just going to talk about it. And maybe you didn't think about it before, but because you told me, because I told you, not, oh, that makes sense. So I'm learning myself so much because of this interview and you know I, i'm loving it <laughs> yeah i'm so grateful that you're doing it i just wish i had more time in my day um so many times i um i wish that i were starting my teaching over again mm. um so that i could you know have time to look at the benefit of all of this and anything that we can do to provide teachers with support is wonderful because they're not getting this kind of information at the university yeah. or, or in other trainings. Um, so, yeah, and, and and even just language students or people who are interested in learning language, even if they, you know, they never thought about teaching and they, they don't want to get involved in teaching, they just want to learn a second language, and they were about to give up because of the traditional grammar approach because they were not having fun, it was boring, it wasn't working, but I, I also want to help that, those people, right? Because I want them to know that you can learn the language, any language actually, by enjoying the process. Exactly, what you said earlier today is something that I think we, you, we can't say enough. And that is if you've acquired one language, it's the evidence that you can acquire another one. Yep. Um, so yes. when teachers say to me, oh, they're not language students, don't, don't worry, don't pay attention to that kid, he's not a language student, it just kills me because, you know, I know they haven't made that connection yet, mm -hmm. and it's all it is, the teacher hasn't made the connection, they're thinking in an old paradigm that to learn a language you must be a good language student, which has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's the process already worked for every single one of us, at, <laughs> at least once. <laughs> once, exactly. So it's a given um, that it can happen again. Yep. Um, and that is probably the oldest paradigm we have to break. Yep, yep. That's the beauty of our amazing brains. <laughs> it is. The brain is an absolutely amazing thing. And Even if it gets stubborn as we get older. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still, you're still capable and amazing, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, to wrap things up, I, I, I just, I just rem remember one example of, I mean, it has nothing to do with, with what we were talking about. It's back to the examples of gold or went and so on. Like, I myself, I can perfectly communicate in English. I understand if it's American, I understand 100% of it. <laughs> if it's Scottish, Irish, yeah. <laughs> a little bit more difficult, but I, I can perfectly communicate in the language. And yet, sometimes when, when I'm speaking and when when I, ha I have to say his or her, I'm perfectly aware of his meaning that we're talking about a man <laughs> or a boy and her about a woman, but still, as I'm speaking in in a natural in real time, sometimes I need to think about it. Uh, it doesn't come natural to me. No. no, I have so many of those in Spanish. I would be embarrassed to tell you. <laughs> and of course, if I if I spend a week with Spanish speaking people, you know, by the end of the week, I'm much much better at it. But um, there are still a lot of things that don't come naturally yet. Um, and I, I'm still working on not being ashamed of that. Yeah, it's just the way it works. Yeah, I, I used to think about it a lot. Like, what's wrong here? Like, I perfectly know that he means a man or a boy and she means a girl. But still, I'm like, she went out with his, uh, wait, 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 <laughs> with her. <laughs> like, what's going on? And back, exactly. Yeah, back to why consciously learning grammar was, is not going to help you. No. It's not all of those rules. And, and let's face it, that was probably something you learned way at the beginning. Oh, yeah. You know, back to the beginning. And, and that's, you know, with Spanish teachers, our greatest frustration with French teachers as well is, is you know, masculine and feminine. And, and mm -hmm. is it a la or no, no? And yeah. we struggle still. I mean, one of the very first things we were taught about, and we struggle still yeah. when I'm talking, they come out incorrectly. Back, back to the idea of it's getting in the way. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and I, I think ultimately that what teachers who use comprehensible input have in common is two things. They actually adore people. Mm -hmm. They might be introverts. Um, they may not be someone who wants to have a ton of conversations with a ton of people at the same time, um, but they, they love people. They care about other people. And they know that communication is a blessing mm, yeah. and our number one form of communication is language um, we use others um, visuals and sounds and facial expressions but the number one way to do it is language and they know that yeah. and when you put those two together um, you're seeking for a way to connect with people yeah that they will understand and, and makes that connection. Yeah. Um, and there's a difference between talking with people 
and talking to people. Mm. And in CI, we try to talk with people. They're part of the equation. We're not, it's not so much about what we want to say, but what do we want the other person to understand? Mm. And I think that across the line that that makes a connection between teachers who use um, comprehensible input and how they look at life and teaching. And so that's why we've found so many friendships, personal and professional in the community. True, true. That's true. Yeah, I'm I'm an introvert myself and I can totally relate to what you just said. (laughs) I think there's this kind of false idea that because a lot of presenters and trainers are extroverts or they've taught themselves to appear extroverted when they do trainings, Mm -hmm. they have to be that kind of person um, to use this approach. And it's just not true. No. It's it's just not true at all. It's really (laughs) it's actually better if you are a a person who cares one on one um, about making your message known and understood to somebody else. That's the key. Just be who you are, right? If you're an extrovert, great. If you're not, great. (laughs) It's the pressure isn't on the teacher to be interesting. the, The the goal is to be interested in the people you're communicating with. Yeah, yeah, that 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 works for life too. Yeah, I was just thinking. <laughs> it really, really does, and I, I think that that is the other gift we give our our students, whether they're adults or or young children, mm-hmm. is that there's an hour out of the week or an hour every day or 15 minutes, um, in which your those students are with a person who cares about people. Yes. More than achievement. Yes, care. That's that's all that matters in life. Yes, care. <laughs> you know, language, just normal conversation, yes, care. That's it's, that's all you need. <laughs> it is and right now it is what we need. It, it really is. Yeah. And not just because we're isolated in our homes. Although I have to say I'm so enjoying having a conversation without a mask on. It's really, it's really nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a, the beauty of the internet as well. Yeah. It is. It is. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to chat on before we head out? I, I have lost complete track of time. No. Um, you knew for all I know. Oh, we've been on a little while. That's <laughs> no, no, no. That was that was just wonderful. Like like I said, I'm I'm enjoying this so, so much. But I'm gonna keep doing it, obviously. <laughs> oh, good. I, 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 you know. I think it's bringing value as well, like for, like I said, for teachers and for people wanting to learn a language. Yeah. I, I think it really is. And because they feel like they're in a conversation with the person because yeah. you are. Yeah. So how did you end up in, in Krakow, Poland? Ooh, that's a long story. <laughs> okay. I don't need a whole one, but. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, not, not that long. Actually, like I first came here to Poland Wait, 10 years ago? Yeah, 10 years ago. And then exchange program in college, my university. Like it, it's called Erasmus in Europe. So you basically go to a different country to, to study for the whole, I mean, uh, one semester or the whole year, right? So I'm from a small town in Spain. So I'm from, you know, my university there is a small one. So I didn't have a lot of choices. So I had a couple of places in the Netherlands and Katowice in Poland, which is another city in the south of Poland. 
And so I came to Poland, basically. And I had, a, I mean, those experiences are just amazing. So I had a wonderful time, but I really enjoyed the experience of living abroad, of having to communicate in different languages all the time. I loved it. And so I came back to Spain, right, to finish my studies. And then I decided to come back to Poland. And it's been back and forth. Like I've come back to Spain and back to Poland a couple of times after that. But I, I basically love that, the, the, the experience of living abroad. I love the country itself. And then Krakow, which is, it's close to the original city that I lived in. And it's a little bigger and way more beautiful because the, the, the <laughs> other one is kind of an industrial city. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, I had a wonderful time, but I, I, I prefer this city also because it has a really like international atmosphere, okay. yeah. especially from Europe. But there's a lot of people from you know Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, and Netherlands, Norway, Ukraine. It's on my, it's on my bucket list. So that's, and yeah, that's, that's the number one thing I enjoy the most. Like, you know, <laughs> talking to people in different languages, getting to know about their culture. So that's why I love it here. And that's why I'm still here because I could actually live anywhere, right? But because I, I do it online, you know, but I'm, I'm just happy here. So that's a little bit, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So if I get there, I'll know who to visit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, I have, I have several places in Europe that I have not been, many, many, many places I, I haven't been, but, but Krakow is one, and um, so if I get there, I will let you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, I mean, they're not the same cities, but especially for, for people in, in the U.S., you, I mean, you know about Italy and London and Paris and Spain, which are great, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but there's a whole bunch of cities in Central Europe that I'm, I'm a huge fan of because of how beautiful they are, like the architecture and so on, the history of them. Yeah. And just like Krakow, how international they are as well. I'm talking about like Krakow in Poland, Prague in the Czech Republic, yes, yes. Budapest, Vienna. Yes. <laughs> okay, those are, my, those are my top three. <laughs> I, Funny so, that you mentioned them. They're really underrated because they're not, well, I mean, Prague probably is more popular, a little bit mm -hmm. more, but still, if you compare them to, you know, Rome, London, Paris, they're not nearly as popular. And don't get me wrong, those other cities are great too, but I think those, these cities, you know, in Central Europe are underrated because they're beautiful and, yeah, good for good people, yeah. Yep, that, those are the three on my list. I, I do a lot of historic, I read a lot of historical fiction and I just keep coming back to those, to that area, to that, you know, to the Central Europe and, and, hung, and you know, no pun intended, I'm, I'm hungry to, <laughs> to, to, to see them, to experience them, to uh, yeah, and they're, well, and see yeah. the people. Yeah, I, I was going to say they're re relatively close to each other, but for an American, they're, they're just down the road, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and for you who live in Texas, come on. You, you, you can visit all of, like, the four I talked about, and, and you wouldn't even be out of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is true. We have that perspective. So yeah. hopefully yeah. you're, you're very young. Hopefully I can get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for, for, for the conversation. I enjoyed it. Like I said, a lot. Well, we'll stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.